you could take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. I want to begin just a short series on the local church and look at a few different key ingredients and discussions in that regard. We'll take a break for Christmas and then in the new year, I think at this point, we'll begin our study in the Gospel of John. In the year 1986, a historic event took place in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Millions of school children were watching as one of their own teachers, Krista McAuliffe, a social studies teacher from Concord, New Hampshire, would be the first female teacher to ever be taken into outer space. Krista, along with six others in the crew, were on board the Challenger that was scheduled to deploy communication satellites and study Halley's Comet while they were in orbit. President Ronald Reagan had delayed his State of the Union address for later in the afternoon so that he would be able to highlight the mission's initial success in his opening remarks. The shuttle was in pristine condition. The captain was top of his class and millions of people were watching this event that had months and years of preparation that had gone into it. And while the world watched CNN Live, really broadcasted the event. And you can watch it on YouTube. The newscaster says, four, three, two, one. And then you watch as the space shuttle begins to rise and the commentator says, and it has cleared the tower and people begin to clap. And the commentators pause as they, along with the rest of the world, watch in awe as they observe this shuttle rising in the sky. And the commentating returns about a minute in or so and the CNN host says, well, the mission is underway. And he continues to talk and then is immediately stopped in his tracks at the 73 second mark, because at the minute one and 13 seconds, the space shuttle exploded on live television. Everyone went silent as this massive explosion of the fuel tank on the back of the space shuttle performed this massive uh, cloud of smoke. The last recorded words of the pilot, pilot within the pit were, uh-oh, before the fuel tank exploded. The question is, what went wrong? Well, the short answer is, a critical piece was ineffective. There are these elastic O-rings that are about the width of a pencil that function as a seal on the rocket. And it helps launch the space shuttle up into the sky. And if you're familiar and ever watched one, that rocket initially detaches and falls back into the ocean. But these seals weren't functioning properly. And so heat was leaking and it began to pour onto the 535 gallon tank of liquid nitrogen and hydrogen. And it ignited the whole space shuttle into a massive fireball. Investigations later discovered that the crew survived the fiery explosion but did not survive the space shuttle's violent crash against the ocean surface after its three-minute rapid descent. All seven crew members died on impact. You can have everything right on the surface, right? You can have the right team. You can have the right preparation. You can have the right strategy. But when a critical piece is missing, it renders the mission not only ineffective, but in grave danger. The same is true, not just of space shuttles, but also for local churches. You can have everything going for you, but when something critical, something essential is missing, the mission is compromised, and the church itself is in grave 
danger. In Revelation 2, Jesus himself is going to write seven letters to seven churches. And in the one that we will observe today, we're going to read of the church of Ephesus that on the surface has everything going for it. But there is something critical missing. These letters were written through the apostle John who is on the island of Patmos. He's the only remaining disciple that's still alive. The rest of the 11 disciples have been sawn in two, stabbed to death, thrown off cliffs, crucified upside down, and fed to lions. But John is around 90 years old, and he's on the island of Patmos, and he's been sent there to bang rocks in exile until he dies. And it's while he's there in exile that he receives a, a lofty and exalted vision of Jesus Christ. We read of that vision in Revelation 1, verse 12. You can look there with me for a moment. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white, like wool, white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I don't know what your vision is of Jesus Christ, but I wonder if his face shines like the sun and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. How does John respond? Well, like any person that beholds God. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. John writes these letters to seven churches and they are real churches in the first century, but they are representative of every church in every age. We read of the introductions because they all follow a similar pattern. There's an introduction, like a, a greeting, and then there's a way that Jesus will introduce himself. And I wanna just look at the seven ways Jesus introduces himself in these seven letters for a moment. It says in chapter two, verse one, Jesus introduces himself this way. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus introduces himself in this way in chapter two, verse eight. The first and the last who is dead and has come to life, says this. To the church of Pergamum, Jesus says in verse 12, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. To the church of Thyatira in verse 18, Jesus says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. To the church of Sardis in 3.1, it says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. To the church of Philadelphia in 3.7, it says, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. And then seventh and finally, to the church of Laodicea, Jesus says in 3.14, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. There's seven different letters, but there's one underlying theme throughout them all. How can you... And how can we as a church live for Christ in a hostile world? They are real churches here, but they represent us today because the strength of these churches are the strengths that churches have today. The weaknesses of these churches are the weaknesses that we share today. The threats to the church are the same in every age. The truth is the truth in every age. And the Lord of the church 
is the Lord of all of the ages. And where we should give particular attention are to the churches that share in our strengths. Because if they share in our strengths, they are likely to share in our weaknesses. Meaning that if your biggest concern is witnessing and reaching the community, you, like the Church of Pergamon, might share their weakness in being undiscerning in doctrine. But if your biggest strength is a zeal and commitment to the truth, we should look to the church that shares this strength so that we may also observe their weakness pointed out by our Lord. We're gonna look at the first church this morning, which is the church of Ephesus. To give you a little bit of context on the church of Ephesus, we first read of it in the book of Acts. Paul arrives there in Acts 19 and 20, and he really takes the baton from Priscilla and Aquila who were there. The church was really founded under the preaching of what the New Testament would define as the greatest preacher in the New Testament, that being Apollos. He was known as the golden mouth. Remember, people would say, well, I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by Paul. There was this debate and schism. Who baptized you? And Paul says, well, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you because this is not a debate anyway. But Apollos was a great preacher. But if you consider the starting five of a team, if you're looking at it from a, a team perspective, the church of Ephesus was founded by Priscilla and Aquila, legends. Apollos, a legend. Paul, legend. Paul's son in the faith became their next pastor. His name, or his name was Timothy. And then the senior statesman of the Christian faith was there before his exile, that being John the apostle. If you're looking at a church with rich pedigree, look no further than the church of Ephesus. Interestingly, this church was vibrant in a place that was marked by moral declension and sexual perversity. The city of Ephesus was deemed the gateway to Asia. There were four main trade routes that went through the city. So if you were looking to get anywhere, you had to go through Ephesus. I remember learning about the ancient wonders of the world when I was in first grade at Madison Elementary in Wheaton, Illinois. I learned about the pyramids. I learned about the hanging gardens in Babylon where there was a complex irrigation system that would take water up to irrigate hanging gardens that were 75 feet in the air. And then I le learned about the temple in Ephesus. This temple was to the goddess Artemis. And it was a city and a temple that was known for sexual promiscuity because she was the goddess of fertility. She was likely the most worshiped God in all of the ancient world. And the temple constructed in her honor was significant. It was 162 feet wide. It was 340 feet long. And there were 100 columns within this temple that were 50 feet high and six feet in circumference. It, it was designed in such a way to wow you. And people from all over the world would go to visit this temple, not just to observe it, but to worship this pagan goddess. And how do you worship this pagan goddess, you ask? Oh, by sexual immorality. There were prostitutes everywhere in Ephesus. It was a wicked city. It was the vanity fair of the ancient world. And not only were there these perverse worship practices, but there was also this business climate and hub that functioned as the economic engine of the entire city. And the business behind the city was anchored to the idolatry within it. But interestingly, in the book of Acts, we find that in this lust-littered idolatry intoxicated culture, God was building his church. And Ephesus was the most notable in all of the New Testament, potentially outside of the church in Jerusalem. Paul comes and begins to preach and out of any church, he spends the most time here 
for three years, he is with the church in Ephesus. And he begins to gather them for five hours a day in the lecture halls of Tyrannus. And he begins to, to teach them the word of God. And it says that they begin to gather and all of the world heard the testimony of Jesus Christ through the city of Ephesus. People were passing by, they were passing through and they would hear the gospel. And then Paul completely disrupted the economic climate there because people began to turn from their gods made with human hands to the only God that is Jesus Christ. This upsetting of the economic climate produced a unparalleled hostility to Christians. There was this persecution that began to take place, but amidst the persecution, there was a church that was not only standing strong, but rapidly growing. Now in this passage, we're gonna read of the church of Ephesus 40 years after the fact. 40 years have passed since Paul was there as their pastor. And Jesus is going to write a letter to them. And through his living word, he's going to write a letter to every church, including ours in this age. And in this letter, Jesus is going to do a few things. He's number one, going to commend them for what they do right. He's going to rebuke them for what they need to correct. He's going to warn them if they don't correct what's wrong. And then he's going to make them a promise. I want to look first at this commendation that Jesus gives. He affirms them, first of all, for their diligence. In verse two, Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you have found them to be false. Pause there for a moment. Jesus says, I know your toil. He sees the church. He's in Revelation 1. Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. He's not disconnected from his bride. He is a groom that loves his bride. And he is there and he's offering affirmation. He's not reluctant to commend. He is a God who is eager to point out areas where they are walking in obedience. Sometimes I think we get this idea of God that he's like a driver's test instructor, that he's looking for faults, looking for demerits. I remember when I was 16, I failed my driver's test for the second time. The first time I couldn't turn off the windshield wipers. The second time he automatically failed me because I was going 47 on a 45 and he had to hit the brakes. Still haven't forgiven him. The third time you go and you're just under the impression that they are looking to fail you, right? So I drove 45 minutes away to Lancaster. I don't know who goes to Lancaster, but I did. And we get this idea of God that when it comes to the church, he's like this. What a joke. They can improve in this. But Jesus starts here by commending them, affirming them. He's not a driver's test instructor. He's a loving groom. He loves to know his church. He is like a gardener who loves his garden, who cares and nurtures his garden. And when he sees something toxic within it, he seeks to remove it because he loves his garden. He wants to take care of that which he is created. So the Lord of the church says that he sees them in their diligence and he likes what he sees. Ephesus was a ministerial beehive. They went after it for Christ and his kingdom. It says in verse two, that I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. The idea here in the Greek is that they labor, but they don't get labored. And they do so in verse three, for my name's sake. They did Christ's work for Christ's sake by Christ's power. They were so different than the contemporary climate in which you live where people show up to church 
looking to find the answer to their question, who's going to serve me? They show up to church looking for other people to meet their needs. There's truth in that, right? We're gonna talk about that in a couple weeks. But the goal of the church and what's healthy about Ephesus is they showed up to church asking one question, how can I serve others? And this created a contagion throughout their entire city of people who were zealous to serve other people, to meet the needs of other people. Some of you have ideas for what we should do as a church. Great, go start it, right? Because the church is full of people that are workers. We're not a spiritual country club. We're not on a cruise ship. Paul says that he is an under rower in a ship. We're all servants of Christ and they serve the Lord and consequently they served each other. They were diligent and the Lord looks at them and says, I see your deeds. I see your toil. boy. Not only does he commend them for their diligence, secondly, he commends them for their discernment. Look at 2b. It says, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false. In verse six, it says, yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This church is praised for the reality that they tolerate much labor for the kingdom of God, but they will not tolerate one thing, any sort of aberrant or errant teaching from the scripture. It says in verse six that they also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Listen, contrary to contemporary opinion, being tolerant of everything and hating nothing in no way represents God's desire for his church. Ephesus is actually commended for the exact opposite. There's two main things that they're commended for outside of their diligence, their intolerance and their hatred. What do they hate and what are they intolerant of? They're intolerant of false teaching and they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Well, it was a sect that was beginning to grow in Christianity where they would put everything under sexual, or everything under Christian freedom. Everything was a part of their sexual liberty. There's Clement of Alexandria who once said about the Nicolaitans, they abandon themselves to pleasure like goats. They lead lives of self-indulgence, and they were doing all of this under the name of Jesus Christ and the freedom that they had in Jesus. And when the church of Ephesus saw this, there was a holy anger that burned in them towards those who were distorting the gospel and grieving and offending God by their perversity. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 31, there's a section where Paul has been with this church for three years. They love him and he loves them. He has been their pastor for many years and he tells them, he gathers the whole church and he says, listen, I'm going to Rome and I'm going to die there. They begged him, don't go to Rome, don't go to Rome. Even his contemporaries were saying, don't go to Rome. And he's saying, I am going there to die. But he looks at the church and he commends them saying, listen, after I depart, savage wolves are going to rise. They're going to come in with deviant doctrine. They're going to have just the right amount of truth to confuse you. Remember, what's discernment? Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And Paul says, listen, after I leave, there are going to be people that come into your midst. They're going to preach and they're going to use this. And they're going to say 90% of the right things and 10% of the wrong things. Don't be fooled. 
This was their pastor, their friend, and he says, be on the lookout and drive false teachers away. And they did. One of the church fathers, Tertullian, once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in the midst of great hostility, they stayed vigilant and on guard against every sort of aberrant teaching because you know what? Even though they were being persecuted, martyrdom is not the greatest danger facing the church. Martyrdom leads to life. The greatest danger facing the church is false teaching because false teaching is the gateway to hell. They were hard workers. They had a close eye on doctrine. They drove home the claims of scripture and they drove away false prophets and teachers. They were like the Bereans in Acts who scrutinized everything with the word of God. They said, show us here, show us here, show us here. But not only are they commended for their diligence and their discernment, in verse three, they are commended for their perseverance. Jesus says, and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. If you typed into Google today, how do I recognize a true church? There would likely be a number of marks and distinctions, but very few of them would possess the characteristic that Jesus himself says is indicative of every true church. Willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. They were cross-bearing Christians who modeled their savior not only in their love for each other, but by his suffering. They had borne persecutions, difficulties, trials, troubles, distresses, embarrassment, and discouragement, yet they had never capitulated to the culture. They had never surrendered to the seduction of sin. They kept on doing Christ's work. The word for perseverance here is the first word I learned in the Greek language when I was a kid. Not because I was a scholar, but because my dad used to show me videos of Vasily Alexiev, the Russian weightlifter. He was this big dude. He wore this red singlet. And he won the Olympic gold in 72 and 76 and has 80 world records for different variations of weightlifting. And I remember he would, I would watch and my dad and he would just show me. He goes, well, that's called the clean. And then that's called the press. And while everyone else was struggling to hold the weight up and just shaking their arms, Vasily Alexiev would hold and then he would taunt everyone while he hold, while he held. And then they would say, time. And then he would drop the weight and just, my dad would always say, Johnny, that is one bad dude. But the word for perseverance is hupomone. It means, it's a two-part compound word. It means to remain under the weight. It means to stand there in the face of persecution, affliction, distress, and discouragement and stand tall. And Jesus says, you have perseverance. You've remained under the weight. Other churches had been driven away by hostility. Other churches had succumbed to sin, but not this church. They stood fast, they stood firm, and they stood under the weight. They weren't a flash in the pan. There were scars and there were bruises on the timeline of their faithfulness. 
Wouldn't this be wonderful if Jesus could say this about our church? I commend your diligence. I commend your discernment. I notice and I applaud your perseverance. Interestingly, in the midst of all this beauty, though, Jesus says, I see toxicity. There is a massive problem. A critical piece is missing that is going to render the mission of the church ineffective. But not only that, Jesus looks at the church in Ephesus and says, you are in grave danger. What's missing? Verse four, the rebuke. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I want you to imagine the silence amongst the Ephesians as they are applauded and affirmed for their diligence, discernment, and perseverance, and yet a blow to their own souls when they hear the groom tell the bride, you don't love me like you used to. They had forgotten that who they are before God is more important than what they do for God. And in this church, in Ephesus, there is no love for Christ. And when your heart grows cold, Jesus says, Stonebridge Bible Church, you're in danger. I remember watching the musical Fiddler on the Roof when I was in high school. And there's this scene where Father Tevye comes to his wife, Goldie, and he sings her a song. You remember the song? He says, do you love me? And she looks at him incredulously and says, what do you mean, do I love you? And then he persists in song. He says, do you love me? And then she responds and she kind of snaps and she says, for 25 years, I've washed your clothes. I fed you food. I, I do everything for you. I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this. And then Father Tevia interrupts the song and there's this crescendo of music and vocal prominence as he says, no, but do you love me? And Goldie says, I guess... I guess I do. But she had, in the midst of everything she was doing for her groom, forgot what was simple and most important. She failed to love him. And the bride who fails to love the groom fails in everything. You can throw meals on the table. You can perform the motions. But when there's no love in the relationship, it grows cold and then it dies. Jesus is asking his church, is there something unlovable about me? Have I been unfaithful to you in any way? Why don't you love me like you used to? Now, what does it mean that they have left their first love? He's not speaking here in relationship to sequence, but in relationship to prominence. To leave your first love here is the love of espousals described in Jeremiah 2, where it's the love of a bride walking down the aisle to her groom. And it's this love that describes the thrill of knowing each other. And the love of the espousals for a new Christian is when there was a genuine hunger for the word of God. There was a desire to pray. Evangelism was natural because it was the excitement that was overflowing out of your hearts. And there was a delight in knowing God. But like the carbonation that leaves a Coke after sitting out for a number of days their love for the Lord had grown flat. And apparently in their devotion to their labor, 
their endurance amidst hostility, and their fixation on orthodoxy, they had forgotten what Jesus considers to be the most important thing of all, a simple love for him. There's a lot of opinions about church. Our church is growing. We have people here from different backgrounds, different denominations. There's a lot of opinions. I have opinions, you have opinions. There's only one opinion that matters. And it's Jesus' opinion. And what he wants the most is a simple love for him. Imagine if you were a member of the church of Ephesus listening to sermon after sermon, you would respond to this and say, of course I love you. I do this and I do this. I'm doctrinally correct. I'm morally pure. I want you to be honored. But Jesus sees beyond our diversionary tactics. He knows and he searches our hearts and he presses our conscience through his word and says, but do you actually love me? The church of Ephesus shows us that you can have all the marks of good and right things, but lose sight of what is most important and most simple. Now, this is not a rebuke from a critic who comes and watches and observes and whose observation is worth little. This is the groom of the bride himself saying, where is the love? At the end of the day, Jesus will not ask you whose teaching did you listen to. He's going to ask you, did you live in obedience to the plain reading of Scripture, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Churches are sensitive to their reputation today. People say things like, I go to such and such a church and we do such and such a program and we're doing such and such a thing and we just did such and such a thing. But Jesus tells us, do not confuse reputation with reality. It is possible to appear attached to the vine and to be in fact detached from Jesus Christ. It is possible to be utterly committed to the truth and not vibrant in our love for the Lord. So what prescription does Jesus give his waning church? Verse five, he says, remember, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. First of which he says to remember and repent. Remember what? To remember from where they have fallen. He says, listen, recall when you were dead in your sin, Recall when you were burdened with iniquity and remember what I have done for you in taking your sin and removing it as far as the east is from the west. One of the first ingredients for a church that is waning in their love for God is to remember and to open up our spiritual memory bank and hear the words of Isaiah afresh in our own hearts. Though our sins were as scarlet, they shall be washed white as what? Snow. We leave our first love when we fail to remember the gospel. We can be filled with good things, church things, ministry things, Greek study, Christmas coffees, men's discipleship, without nurturing our inner man to love our Savior Jesus Christ. Maybe as Jesus bids us to remember what it was like when we first got saved, you can't remember that feeling because it's hard to remember something you've never experienced. 
it's hard for you to remember what it was like when Jesus saved you because there's a large percentage of people in every church that are not saved, right? That's not my opinion. That's not a Barna study. That's Matthew 7, 22. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say, I never knew you because there's people that know the truth that do not know the Savior. But Jesus says, if you have been saved, you need to remember from where you've fallen. Secondly, he says to repeat. He says, repent and do the deeds. Repeat the deeds you did at first. I'm encouraged because Jesus doesn't say, feel the same feelings. He says, do the deeds you did at first. He's saying to you, your heart has grown cold because you stopped doing what came natural to you when you first got saved. He doesn't say, wait till you feel a certain way to start obeying. He says that obedience cultivates the feeling. Some of you have stopped serving God because you're waiting till God does something on your heart so that then it propels you to want to serve. Jesus says, there's no, no wonder why your heart for God has grown cold. It's because you're not serving God because obedience produces affection. And vice versa. It's affection that also produces obedience, right? In 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ constrains us. But when the feeling's not there, we don't stop obeying. Jesus says he gives you an exact opposite prescription. Are you lacking and lackluster in your love for God? Well, then start obeying and start serving him. He says, do the deeds you did at first. What are the deeds you did at first when you're first saved? Well, we have to look at the deeds that the Ephesian church did at first. They're described for us in Acts and Ephesians and in the rest of the scripture. What are the deeds they did at first? If Jesus says your heart has grown cold, do the deeds. What are the deeds? Well, first of which, there was a hunger for God's presence in God's word. In Acts 19 and 20, they were gathering in these lecture halls day after day. I, I, as you know, I worked in camp ministry for a long time and people, you know, students would typically come up and say like, I just, I just don't wanna leave the mountain. And I'd always just say, hey, there's nothing special about the mountain. The only thing here that's really unique is a saturation of your mind and heart with the truth of scripture. You're in a daily rhythm of waking up and going to bed and throughout the day, this fellowship and this intimacy with God and his word, that's what's producing the thrill here, not the trees. And in the church of Ephesus, there was a hunger for the word of God, five hours a day. But over time, the church of Ephesus started to use the word of God only to fight air and not to nourish their own soul. We can listen to preaching and we can grow by it. We can study the word of God and grow by it. But over time, we can become critical of preaching or critical of our own study. I'm not getting anything out of this. We can get a lot out of fellowship, but when our fellowship stops working for us, we wane in our hunger for God's word. So there's this hunger for the word of God that described their deeds at first. Secondly, there was this element of fervent prayer. In Ephesians 6, 11, Paul says to pray always to the Ephesian church. It sounds so basic. It sounds so rudimentary, so simple, so neglected, though, however, by many today and by the Ephesian church back then. Do you want to know when you left your first love? When you stopped stooping to your knees in humble prayer. How can you love someone you don't spend time with? You can be more intent on serving God than communing with God. And when your service is disconnected from fellowship, your service becomes stale. And you start to wonder, what am I even doing? 
Why are some planets cold? Because they're so far from the sun. And why are some Christians cold? Because they're so far from the sun of righteousness. When you go days, weeks, months, and perhaps even years without personal, real fellowship with God, how can you possibly maintain love towards a stranger? Without prayer, I want you to understand, we're going to study the Bible, and we're going to study it deeply. But without prayer, your theological study produces no personal thrill. And the goal here is not to have large heads only, but large hearts for God. You are vulnerable to every sin when you do not live in fervent prayer. Jesus says to his disciples, be watchful and pray lest you fall into temptation. What temptation, Jesus? Any kind of temptation. Lust, greed, worldliness, and abandonment of your first love. Because Satan is a seducer. And if he's not coming after you with the temptations of the world that are obvious, what he's going to do is he's going to subtly try to detract and diminish your fervent love for Jesus Christ. He has a number of weapons. And the most dangerous ones are the most subtle ones. Third, in Ephesus, there was a love for God's people. Paul says in Ephesians 1.15, since the day we heard about your love for God and your love for each other, we have not stopped giving thanks to God. We're gonna talk about this more in detail over the following weeks, but the church of Ephesus, as described in Acts and in the book of Ephesians, was a church that loved each other. Sadly, what happened is that this doctrinally sound church became so quick to learn theology and slow to forgive other people. There's a habit of always looking for error, not only in false teaching, but in each other. And they became impatient with one another. You know what's one of the things that I was trying to explain this to first service, one of the things I find fascinating about the Apostle John is he has two main descriptors in the New Testament, the first of which is the son of thunder. Why don't we call down lightning and fire from heaven right now and roast these suckers, right? Passionate about the truth. But in his later years, he's known as what? The apostle of love. It is possible for you and biblical for you to be theologically rigorous while personally affectionate and warm. Most churches today, I would say, are one or the other. Theologically rigorous and pugnacious and obnoxious or personally warm without a theological mooring so that they don't battle air when it arises. My prayer for our church is that we love the truth and we have a heart for people that maybe don't know it, that are maybe biblically illiterate or who just didn't grow up the way you did and don't know it yet. Because how will they know without a preacher applies just as much to people growing up in the South as it does to people in Africa. So John had this love for the truth, but also a love for other people. And there was this mark in the Ephesian church. Fourth, there's this evangelistic zeal that marked them at first. It says in Acts 20, I already told you that the whole world heard the testimony of the gospel because of one main church, the church of Ephesus. But do you know what happened to the church of Ephesus? It's what I think is happening amongst many solid churches today. So busy battling air and so busy keeping Satan out of their backyard. They have forgotten the church is not on defense. You understand that? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Gates are defensive structures. 
The church is on offense. And when the church forgets that we are the ones who are kicking down the gates of the devil and instead are so focused and fixated on keeping the world out of the church, we forget that our mission is to get the church into the world. We're so focused on keeping the dark out of the light, we've forgotten that we are a city on a hill. And what happened with the church of Ephesus is stay away from false teaching, stay away from darkness, good things, amen? They have forgotten though that the light is given to a church so they can shine in the dark. Kevin DeYoung says, I like this. He says, it is possible that many churches today are so focused on not compromising with the world that they have forgotten that their mission is to engage it. Convicting. Fifth, what marked the deeds they did at first was transparent confession. In Acts 19, verse 18, it says, many of those who had believed in Ephesus kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. It says when they confessed and disclosed, that word for disclosure is the idea of full transparency. It says, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone and they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. True awakening and true vibrancy in any church is when the people are committed to be honest and transparent with one another. You've shown up at a church today, people put on what is probably one of their nicer outfits. I've noticed some of you wearing new outfits, Black Friday sales. You look good today. People put on an appearance, not just in their dress, but in their behavior. Very few would betray that their life is not put together. But what marked the church of Ephesus at the beginning was a full divulgence of sin. We cannot function as a church if we pretend that we are good. Because also, you will never grow into the image of Christ without other people in Christ's body. They're essential for you. Sin thrives in the darkness. But when you drag it into the light and expose and disclose that in front of other people, you link your arms with those around you and you fight sin together. And think what happened over four decades of faithfulness is the people in the church forgot that the church is not for perfect people. It's for people who need a savior and need each other. So then there's this warning. There's a commendation, a rebuke, and then a warning. Look with me at verse 5b. Jesus says, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Does the word or phrase or else sound stern to you? Jesus is a loving savior, but he does not sugarcoat the warning. He says, or else I will remove your lampstand. What does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation because once saved, always saved. But it does mean you can lose your influence as a church. I've been to Ephesus. You wanna know what the church looks like there? Bunch of rocks. I've been to Europe. You wanna know what those churches look like? Bunch of museums. In fact, I was reading the Wall Street Journal, one of the fastest and quickest and inexpensive ways for you to start your own pub in Scotland is by buying an abandoned church because they're all going out of business. What happened? 
while churches that refuse to shine die. Jesus says, love me and give the gospel away or lose it. There's a real danger here. The question is, will they listen? And the answer is, apparently not. The night before the 1986 Challenger launched, a group of contractors from Morton Thiokol wrote NASA detailing for them that the elastic rings they were using on the rocket were not designed for the cold temperatures of the morning and detailed for them exactly what was going to happen. They said the mission is in danger. Do not proceed. Sadly, the message, the letter, was not heeded, and they reaped the consequences. The question is, will we heed the message and the letter from our Lord? We can do a lot of good things, and we can forget the main thing, which is loving our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who observes his church, observes your life, and who calls us to remember the gospel repent of, of really our apathy and indifference towards Christ and then to repeat and do the deeds you did at first. In the future weeks, we're gonna talk about a, a number of different things in regards to the church. But do you know one of the most obvious manifestations of a love for Jesus Christ is? A love for his people and a desire to serve. You will have a very hard time convincing the Lord on the last day that you loved his people if you did not serve his people. This church is not gonna be pew sitters. We wanna be commended by our Lord as a church and not just as individuals, amen? Which means that we need a heart to serve each other. It means that we remember the gospel. It means we're fueled by the love of God. It means we're marked by evangelistic zeal, a hunger for the truth, a burden for the lost, and a desire for Christ's return. God does not speak to us audibly today, but he gives us his word. Will we listen? Because here's the promise in verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I look forward to that day, don't you? Let's pray. God, we are thankful, Lord, for your word. Lord, we're thankful for the warnings that you give us. We're thankful, God, that you commend us for where we need to be commended. Lord, this church, Stonebridge, is a church that in many ways is marked by a number of people who serve you diligently. Lord, there is a desire and hunger for the truth. We see the world around us succumbing to deviant doctrines and subtle forms of aberrant theology. And Lord, we want to know your word and yet, Lord, we never want to fail, we never want to forget what's most important. And that's a, a love, a genuine love for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that when our love wanes, we would do the deeds we did at first. That we would live in obedience through your spirit and through your power, even when we don't feel like it. Because if we only obeyed when we felt like it, we would be very inconsistent. Lord, I pray that you would suture our hearts together as a body. Would we love the groom, Jesus Christ? Lord, and would we 
be able to collectively present to you a bride that is unblemished, full of love, full of service for you. For anybody here, Lord, that doesn't know you this morning, would you convict them of their sin? Would they see their great need for a savior? And would they heed Christ's invitation that you stand at the door and knock? And Lord, I pray that they would give their life to you as savior because you lived for us, you died for us, you rose for us, and we read in Revelation that you're one day coming back for us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen.